neuro nerds and welcome. This podcast provides a spotlight for graduate students in neuroscience to tell you why the you should care about their work when you're so busy caring about your own. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm Meredith Schmale. I'm a PhD candidate at Duke University in the neurobiology department. So can you talk a little bit about what your lab primarily looks at? Sure. So in general, my lab studies how vision and hearing work together and how the brain is involved in combining those two things. And we study those, that issue in two different ways. The first way is that half the lab works with monkeys. And we're interested in looking at different parts of the brain and how the cells in those parts of the brain combine what the monkeys see and hear while they play a game. And then the second half of the lab works with humans and they actually study the ear instead of the brain. And so they are looking at patterns of vibrations in the ear. Um, so for example, if the bones or the eardrum vibrate when you hear sound, uh, but it turns out that when you look different directions, when your eyes move, your eardrums vibrate also. So they're looking at that, which is super cool. That was a lot of information. I'm about to ask a lot of questions. So the first question is about that last part that you just talked about with when your eyes move that your, that the bones in your ears vibrate. Um, how do you measure that? Yeah, so it's pretty cool. Uh, so what they do is they put these tiny microphones in people's ears. So it's kind of like earbuds, but instead of playing music, they're actually just recording what's happening in the ear. And what they're recording is tiny pressure changes. So as your eardrum moves back and forth, there's these tiny up and down patterns in the air pressure inside the ear. And so they can pick that up with this microphone and then look at it on a computer screen, just using code to kind of plot it. And it just looks like this up and down oscillation pattern. That is so cool. And so they're only able to measure specifically movement of the eardrum. Yeah, so they're just measuring those pressure changes. And what they generally do is they have people do some kind of task while they record from the ear. So the task is going to be looking in different directions. And as the eyes move, it actually makes the eardrum vibrate. And so they're looking at what causes different vibrational patterns based on different eye movements. Do you still see these pressure changes when the eyes are closed or does there have to be visual input? I know that the eyes have to move, but what if your eyelids are closed? That's a great question. So that's not something that our lab has studied in detail, but I would guess that it doesn't matter if your eyes are open or closed. It just matters if they're moving, but that's really interesting and not something that we've studied. Yeah. Well, cause I'm just thinking about during like REM sleep, would you still be getting these movements of the eardrum? It's like fascinating. Yeah, that's something that I haven't really thought about. I imagine that you would, but we haven't studied this when people are asleep, so I'm not sure. Now, to the first part of what you were saying before about these monkeys. First off, what kind of monkeys are they? They're rhesus macaques, which is the most common type of lab monkey. Ooh, they're mean. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they are. They're kind of like toddlers. <laughs> I used to work with um, macaques and they they definitely had a lot of personality that's for sure yeah ours do too they definitely have their own personalities and likes and dislikes oh yes oh yes 
Um, so you said that they play a game while you're recording um, from special brain cells. Can you describe this? Absolutely. So in my experiment, the monkey is playing a game where there are lights and sounds that turn on. So my monkey is sitting in a dark, quiet room where there's not really much going on, but then a sound or a light will come on in front of the monkey. And the monkey's job is to tell me where the light or sound is by looking directly at it. And so I'm tracking the monkey's eye so I can see where she's looking and I can see where she thinks these lights and sounds are coming from. And while she does that, I'm recording from just one single brain cell in a part of the brain called the inferior colliculus, which is an auditory region. So I'm trying to understand what this brain region is doing to help the monkey locate these lights and sounds. There has to be a lot of involvement of like attention in that as well. Yes, so it's a very active task. So the monkey does have to participate very actively, uh, but people have done similar work just presenting sounds while the monkey doesn't have to do anything. And uh, they have done studies of this brain region as well. So you can do both, but mine is very active. So do you have them in one of those like plexiglass chairs and they're able to move their head and attend to the different sounds and lights? So they are sitting in a little plexiglass chair, but we actually have to kind of fix their head in place mm -hmm. so that they can't turn it from side to side. Uh, and that becomes important because there's this idea of reference frames. Your brain constantly has to align information from your eyes and ears. And in order to do that, to resolve that in our experiment, the monkey has to have their head fixed in place, just facing forward. I would love to go into that references, reference frame bit a little further. Awesome. So the idea of reference frames is this idea that your brain has to constantly align information from your eyes and ears. So if you think about it, if you keep your head still, just facing forward, you can still move your eyes, right? You can move them up, down, left, right. So your eyes can move independently of your head. But in contrast, your ears are attached to your head. So if you move your head, your ears move with you and you can't really change the direction of your ears without also moving your head. So because of that, there's kind of this constant flux of where are your eyes in relation to your ears and your head direction. And so those two different reference frames constantly have to be aligned so that you understand where things are in space. And so your brain is constantly doing this calculation of aligning your eyes and your ears. So for my experiment, we just want to kind of eliminate that calculation altogether. So uh, what we do is we just fix the monkey's head facing straight forward, and then we know the ears are always in the same spot. I guess like monkeys can't change, <laughs> can't move their ears or wiggle their ears, but I know that rodents do. Um, so you would probably not have this same idea of a reference frame for rodents. Am I understanding that correctly? Um, so I guess when I say move the ears, I don't mean wiggle. I mean totally change the position of the ears with respect to the head. So monkeys can wiggle oh. their ears to some extent, uh, but they're still always kind of stuck in place with relation to the head, whereas the eyes can just point in all kinds of directions and look at different things. And those are pretty different kinds of moving. So that's just what I mean by moving the ears. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's like a very new concept to me. So I'm just like having to wrap my head around it for a second. Yeah, to be honest, I don't know a lot about reference frames with other animals such as rodents, but I imagine it probably would be different. I know 
there are a lot of differences in rodents in other systems. Like for example, the visual system is pretty different. So um, it could be different. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, rodents just have terrible vision in general. That's from, true. From I used to I, work with rodents. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm currently working with them. And as long as you, as long as you stand like a foot or two away, they don't even know you're there. Or at least it doesn't seem like they know that you're there. <laughs> so um, what, what interested you about this kind of research? So I think I've always been interested in studying sensory systems, just kind of learning about how the uh, stuff going on outside of us gets input into our brains and how we process it. I just think that's a really interesting question. Um, but I got drawn to this lab in particular because it was somewhat related to what I had done in college. So when I was in college, I was working with rodents, as I mentioned. Um, I was working primarily on the visual system in mice. So how do mice see? And then when I got to grad school, I wanted to do something similar, but maybe uh, switch model systems. And so I found this lab, which was working on a somewhat similar question. Um, it involves vision, but also involves hearing, um, as well as switching model systems. And I thought that would be an interesting way to use what I had learned before, but also learn something new. And I thought it would be cool to learn how two different sensory systems are combined. Yeah, it's, it's definitely really interesting. Do you want to talk for a second about your experience working with primates? Because I know as someone that went from primates to rodents, and you're someone that went from rodents to primates, just to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that might be a really interesting difference to talk about. Um, so I started off with mice and I have kind of a lot of mouse experience from college, um, but I had no monkey experience at all before I started grad school. Um, and it was really interesting to me to see, first of all, how many things I could actually take between the two. Like there was a lot of transferable knowledge in terms of how do you train a mouse and how do you train a monkey. Um, but I think it was also very surprising to me how much of a learning curve there was to work with monkeys, just all the techniques that I never even realized I was going to have to learn, like how do you take a monkey out of a cage is a process that takes a pretty long time to learn. Um, and it's a prerequisite for the actual true experiment. Uh, so it's definitely been a learning curve, but I really like it. It's a lot of fun. And I like the questions that you can ask and answer by working with monkeys. So um, I'm seeing that a lot of the stuff that you're research is based on is the idea that vision influences sound um, and maybe the other way around. So can you discuss that a little bit? Sure. So it's actually more of the other way around. So I'm most interested in how we hear and how that's different when there are also lights to look at. So what I'm specifically doing in my experiment is there are sounds at many locations. And then sometimes that sound is also paired with a light at the same time. And the light could be at different distances from the sound or maybe at the same place as the sound. And what I'm looking at is, does the brain's response to the sound look different when there's also a light nearby? Do you wanna talk about maybe how this can translate into human work? Video of a mouth that is saying a monosyllabic genome? just saying like ma, 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 or ba, 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 like an M or a B, um, that changes. Yeah, so that is a really famous experiment. And what they found is this thing called the McGurk effect. Um, so just to explain for the audience in case they haven't heard of this before, um, 
these videos have a person saying ba 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 and then the video is overlaid with audio that says ga 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 while you're watching this person make the ba lip movements and what happens is you will actually perceive that the person is saying da 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 even though that's not what you're seeing or hearing and so that's a really classic example of how what we see can influence what we hear. And lip reading is kind of the classic thing that we usually talk about. Yeah, I've, I remember seeing that in my um, intro to psychology class in college and just being shocked <laughs> that, that uh, hardware in the brain is so fallible. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's actually, I don't know if I would call it fallible. I think it's actually a really good thing that the brain is doing because what it's aiming to do is help us contextualize what we're hearing and seeing all the time. And normally we do this really well. It's just that sometimes we get fooled, but normally this is actually a really good thing. It helps us, for example, hear things in a crowded room better. So if you're at a really loud crowded party with a lot of voices, you might be able to pick out one person's voice better if you can watch them as they're talking and you can watch their lips move. And so this is actually a really good thing. It's very helpful probably why it's also more difficult to understand what people are saying on the phone. Definitely. Or if they're wearing masks. I know I've experienced that now. If you're in a noisy environment and someone's wearing a mask and you can't lip read, that can be much harder to hear them. So um, a question that I had as well is if the effect of anticipation could be a confound in some of this research, um, like if you're anticipating auditory or visual input, does that really, does that affect the neural response to sensory stimulation? So the anticipation could potentially have an effect, um, but we know that the neuron is responding directly to the sound because we can look at the response using a very high temporal resolution. So we can zoom in in time and say, oh, look, it responded as soon as the sound came on and not before. But you definitely do get responses to things like reward, for example. So as my monkey is playing the game, she gets a juice reward every time she correctly locates the light and the sound. Um, and there are definitely reward responses in the brain as well. So that's also something to, I guess, watch out for. How does the reward response affect like the auditory or visual cortices? Yeah, so I'm not specifically studying the auditory and visual cortices, but I know that those regions also do respond to reward in addition to just visual or auditory information. Um, so it just kind of goes to show that the brain is much more connected than neuroscientists often like to say. Uh, and that's very important to think about and is kind of the main thing that our lab is trying to work on is how do these things all work together? So I saw this, bit in your paper in your review paper um, that says that sounds can cause pupil dilation. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so uh, what pupil dilation means is it just means that your pupil gets larger. And this is something that happens in a variety of situations. It just signifies that you're paying attention to something that something is important to you. So for example, if you see someone you really care about, your pupils might dilate. Um, and so in this case, what we mean by dilation in response to sound is that when a sound comes on, your pupils can dilate. And this might signify that you're actually um, paying attention to the sound more, that it's relevant to your life. Maybe you're listening to someone talk, that sort of thing. So 
it's more of a proxy for arousal um, and maybe attention than just like, oh, if you listen to like, well, I mean, maybe it could also be related to arousal and reward in this sense, but oh, you're listening to good music. Or yeah, I think the reward and attention bit is definitely a good way to think about it. Attention is a very interesting thing. Um, I looked a little bit at it in undergrad, especially with the noradrenergic system. So that's how I think a lot about uh, this sensory work. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So I'm also thinking about how other senses can possibly cross communicate um, similar to this. Do you have any idea if like the auditory and vestibular systems can interact to maybe affect perception? Yeah, that's a great question. So definitely the auditory and vestibular or balance systems do interact because those are both controlled in the ear. Uh, another example would be our sense of touch and our sense of sight. So there's another closely related region, the one that I'm studying, it's called the superior colliculus. And this is a region that responds to a variety of different types of information, such as visual, sound, even touch. And so that information is kind of integrated in that area. Um, so there's a lot of crosstalk between our different sensory systems. Um, and people study that in all kinds of ways. There's this really cool illusion called the rubber hand illusion, um, which demonstrates the connection between sight and touch. So it's this illusion where if you put a rubber fake hand on a table and put someone's real hand underneath and you simultaneously stroke both of them, and then you stop stroking the real hand underneath the table, but you continue stroking the rubber hand on top of the table, the person will perceive on their actual hand, they will perceive the stroking because they've sort of connected this touch information with the rubber hand that they see. So that's just a really cool illusion that demonstrates this other connection. So yes, there is a lot of crosstalk with other sensory systems. That's crazy. Like, is there, I'm trying to think of other senses that may like interact like this. Are there any others that you can think of? I'm, I'm trying to think of um, like the systems that we might not be able to as easily study, um, like taste, <laughs> if there's like a taste and um, touch crossover. <laughs> Yeah, that would be really interesting. I don't know a lot about the sense of taste, to be honest, but that would be something interesting. And I'm sure someone somewhere is studying that. Yeah, and I would imagine that taste research is really difficult, especially from a neuroscience point of view. Um, I mean, I don't really know how refined rodent palates are, you know, like <laughs> how many, how many different um, tastes they can perceive, et cetera. Yeah, and it's even more complicated because the sense of smell and the sense of taste are so connected. So for example, when you feel sick and you can't really smell as well, you also might notice that your sense of taste is somewhat altered. And so there's a lot of connections there, um, but I'm not sure to what extent people have studied taste as a separate thing from the sense of smell. Yeah, and especially with you know, coronavirus, that's one of the first, or not one of the first, but one of the most prominent um, symptoms is loss of smell that affects loss of taste. Yeah, definitely. I saw this TikTok that was a, a young woman who ordered a Frappuccino and got like a $17 flat Frappuccino or whatever. It's 
all the different pumps and she's like, this tastes like nothing. Um, and then realized she made the connection during the video that she was like, oh my God, I think I have COVID. Um, <laughs> and it just, it kind of made me think about all of this crossover because she, she probably, like, again, I wonder if there's a crossover and an interaction between visual input and taste, because I know that there's almost like anticipatory effects on taste too. Like things will taste even better because you've waited for a long time for them um, or you're expecting your favorite treat to be your favorite treat when you're finished. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I think people have even done studies in like bakeries and do you think that things taste better if there are certain colors, like different colors of frosting? And I think they found that they do. So there's definitely a connection there. It's really cool. Yeah, because red frosting tastes bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I know that something that I'm really curious about talking about all these cross senses is the idea is not the idea, but the phenomenon of synesthesia and synesthesia is when um, certain sensory stimulation evokes sen other sensory response. So if you hear something, you might be able, if you hear certain kinds of music, you might be able to taste that kind of music. Um, I know I have a friend who has synesthesia who, you know, rap tastes tangy um, and classical music. I don't remember exactly what, it, but it might be salty. Um, do you know if there's been any research or any kind of speculation on how this could kind of tie into all the other stuff that your lab is studying? That's a really interesting question. And to be honest, I don't know a lot about the connection there, but my guess would be that in people who have synesthesia, there's probably more than typical of these connections between the different sensory areas. But as far as what exactly those connections look like, I'm not sure. That's pretty far removed from my research on monkeys. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking because when you're when you're saying that there's more, that there may be, you know, we don't, we're not claiming to be experts on this, <laughs> um, but there, that there may be more um, interconnectivity of these senses. I wonder if there's, if things could actually get like crossed, if things, if uh, input isn't, isn't getting directly shunted into uh, the sensory cortex that it's supposed to be shunted into and is eliciting kind of this aberrant response in another area, right? Because if you're getting this, like in, in your research, let's just say in the, in the auditory research that the other half of your lab is doing, looking at how visual attention could possibly translate to evoked sound. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to be said there about where the connections are going, because even typically there are connections between all these different sensory systems, like auditory cortex connects to visual, visual cortex connects to auditory, even the region that I'm studying, the inferior colliculus, receives direct input from the retina. So if there's greater strength to those inputs or greater numbers of those inputs, I can see how you would get this state of synesthesia. I like can't stop thinking about this now. <laughs> 
Well, that's one of those things that's just fascinating that I can get into such a rabbit hole into, but I just don't have the time to sit and learn about synesthesia. I'm trying to think of how to phrase this better to fit more with your research. If you're not getting input, like the equivalent of visual deprivation, but like um, auditory deprivation, is that what you're asking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other, and possibly how auditory input would change I mean, I'm thinking in rodent studies, if you like sever the optic muscles, right? Because when you have this visual saccade task and that's causing, is it is a tympanic membrane movement? Mm -hmm. If you block the source, can you block the output or is it attenuated? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, so I know in the case of vision, if, for example, a mouse doesn't get visual input. So if their eyes are closed or if they're raised in the dark for um, some days early in life, then their visual system doesn't develop as it normally would. Um, I'm not sure of any specific studies doing a similar thing with hearing, but I'm sure there would be some sort of similar effect where things don't develop as they typically would, but I'm not sure. This is the hard part about human research for me. Um, and why I get very frustrated when I get, when I come up with a question <laughs> that can't be answered based on like the, the human data. Yeah, it's hard because you can't always do the manipulation that you would want to do in humans because it's unethical, but some, sometimes you have really interesting questions that could only be answered in humans. Oh, ethics. What do you mean <laughs> I can't go in and sever optic muscles to see yeah. if it affects hearing. <laughs> what would you say is one of the biggest problems that you come across in your research? This, this could be a, a number of things. It could be funding. It could be, you know, getting the monkeys to participate um, in their task for the day, um, etc. I think the biggest challenge that I've faced is just learning to work with monkeys and doing all the steps that worked my way up to my true actual experiment. Um, because I'm in my third year of my PhD and I only just recently started to really do these experiments in full. Everything that I was doing up until now was sort of preparing my equipment, preparing my monkeys, um, training my monkey to do this task took a pretty long time. Um, and there are also setbacks along the way. So for example, sometimes the device on the monkey's head to head fix them falls off or comes loose and then you have to fix that. And so there's these setbacks along the way. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing with monkey research is that it can be somewhat slow because there's a lot of preparation that you have to do. But once you get to the point of doing your experiments, it's actually a lot of fun and um, you can get a lot done pretty quickly. You just have to get to that point. That's so cool. And I have another monkey question. Um, you keep saying my monkey. Is it only one? Yeah, so I work with one monkey at a time. I'm currently working with one. Um, by the end of my PhD, I will also get data from a second monkey, but it's just one at a time. So we kind of form this bond that she knows that she gets to work with me and only me. It's kind of fun. That's, that's so sweet. I as someone who is in rodents and we have like 10 animals in a group at least, how are you able to get um, 
high enough powered results? Is it because you're recording from each, from like individual neurons? Yes, exactly. So for mouse research, often your N is your number of animals. But in the case of our research, our N is the number of cells. So I might get something like 100 cells for my experiment, and then I would be able to do a lot of data analysis and averaging from all the data across all the cells. You would not be able to tell if there was like a monkey effect, like a subject effect. So that is why we generally do two monkeys per experiment. So if you look back at any monkey paper, they will always have at least two monkeys. And that's because you have to prove that it's not specific to your one monkey. So a joke that we often have in monkey research is one monkey is no monkeys, but two monkeys is all the monkeys. Because you don't have to do more than two, you just have to do two. <laughs> that's so funny. And um, I'm also really interested in sex differences. Um, do you happen to know if there's any sex effects in this? Because I'm, I also heard that you kept calling your monkey she. Yes, so my monkey is a female. Um, there are potential sex differences in other experiments, but that's not something that we're concerned about here, just because seeing and hearing are not really sex-based at all. And so that's not something that I am personally accounting for, although just by chance, the two monkeys that I'm going to be using are one female and one male. So it would balance out anyway. Nice. So why should we, the public, care about this, your research, and the implications that it has? So I think we've talked about some of this already in terms of where do you see this in your everyday life, such as if you're in a crowded room and you're trying to listen to someone or when you're wearing a mask and it's harder to listen because you can't lip read. So I think it would just be really interesting for the audience to look for these places in their everyday life where they can see the effects of two of their senses working together because it really happens a lot. We just don't think about it. I would. Short, sweet to the point. So do you want to plug anything before we, um, before we end? Sure. So the audience can find me on Twitter. It's at Meredith Schmale. I also have a website, meredithschmale.com. And on there, you can find a number of other places to find me, such as LinkedIn, as well as some of the other things that I do outside of the lab, such as science writing and a podcast that I do, actually, which is very similar to this one. We interview scientists. So if you are interested in that, you can also find us. It's called the Gastronauts Podcast, and we are on Twitter at Gut Brain Matters. Very cool. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye.